The following is brought to you by the Leave It in the Ring Podcast Network. All boxing, no filter. Greetings and welcome to the Boxing Esquire Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Boxing Esquire podcast presented by The Ring and RingTV.com and distributed by the Leave It in the Ring Network. My guest on this episode is author and editor at HannibalBoxing.com, Mr. Carlos Acevedo. We discuss Carlos's excellent new book, Sporting Blood, Tales from the Dark Side of Boxing, which goes on sale March 31st. We get into a few of the subjects of the book, including Sonny Liston, Tony Ayala, and Smoking Bird Cooper. Uh, we also talked about Carlos's youth in the Bronx and how he came to be interested in the uh, sweet science. And finally, uh, we get into the good and the bad in today's boxing scene and how things have evolved over time uh, from boxing's resurgence in the 1970s. I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, finally getting Carlos on the podcast. Hope you enjoy it, too. It is my pleasure to have as a guest uh, this time around one of my favorite writers, uh, boxing or otherwise, uh, in the world. He, ha- he has a new book coming out uh, March 31st titled Sporting Blood, Tales from the Dark Side of Boxing, which I highly recommend. Uh, welcome to the Boxing Esquire podcast presented by The Ring, uh, Mr. Carlos Acevedo. A man, Kurt, good to be here. <laughs> Cool, man. Cool. I re- really, uh, you know, got a chance to, to, to read the book. It's it's amazing. I know people are going to love this thing. Uh, I definitely, uh, you know, it's interesting, too. I mean, I, I read the interview you did with Sean Nam. I thought it was great, too. So I wanted to get into your background a little bit, which I think is really interesting. So uh, so you're, you're originally from the Bronx? Yes, I'm originally from the Bronx. Uh, I was raised in the uh, Bathgate neighborhood, which I guess is Little Italy for the most part. And uh, then I moved up to the Kingsbridge or Fordham section. And I spent a lot of time there, but I got out finally after good behavior. <laughs> so what drew you to boxing? Well, you know, boxing, when I was a kid, it was everywhere, basically. I mean, you didn't need a secret decoder ring <laughs> or any kind of, like, you know, uh, special TV channel. It was it was basically everywhere and my first memory of boxing is actually Muhammad Ali which is you know probably everybody's first memory of boxing <laughs> in the 1970s right 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 uh, I remember him with Gorilla Monsoon doing a wrestling skit <laughs> <laughs> you know That's Ali awesome. does his thing right you know he heckles and heckles and threatens and whatever and then he gets in the ring and monsoon puts him in the airplane spin ah i think i've seen that one actually yeah that's crazy i mean i, I you know i mean it is because you know because you know as as you know growing up i mean I, I thought ali you know was i mean the heavyweight champ was you know baddest man on the planet and uh to see a yeah. wrestler pick him up was just like shocking <laughs> oh yeah yeah, when I was a kid, I was just like, what? Because, you know, I had a Muhammad Ali action figure. And I was like, you can't do that to my action figure guy. I mean, you know, he picked him up and he threw him on the canvas. Exactly. It was, yeah. it was wild. It was wild. But, you know, boxing at that time was part of the uh, cultural zeitgeist, you know. And, like, Ali was a huge figure, obviously, in the 1970s, even when he was already, you know, falling to pieces in the ring. But, you know, he was such a... He was such a character that you couldn't help but love him. I mean, he had a cartoon, he had the action figure, he had a comic book about him. And from there, you know, the the 80s renaissance came about, right? You know, from the uh, 76 Olympic team. You know, boxing was on TV all the time, basically. Right, right. Yeah, it's a, you know it's funny you say that. I was thinking about this the other night, and uh, you know, and I, I think that you know that 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 renaissance of boxing, you know, after the big lull it had, you know, at, you know, post uh, mob and and Senate hearings and co- going off of TV, basically, um, you know, then you had Ali, and and you know, I, I have to think that that renaissance in '76 were a bunch of kids who were inspired by Muhammad Ali to get into boxing, right? And uh Oh yeah. And we fielded like one of the best Olympic teams of, you know, we we've ever fielded uh with some amazing fighters on it. But you know, just a 
kind of a confluence of things. You know, Ali still being around in 76, Rocky coming out, that great 76 right. Olympic team with Sugar Ray Leonard. Yeah, I mean, you and I are probably around the same age. So, yeah, I, I, I was, you know, that, that was like a big time. You know, boxing was like back, you know, in, uh, in 76. Yeah. yeah, you know, and I was a kid, and, you know, I'm Puerto Rican, and I come from a Puerto Rican uh, household. You know, boxing is in every Puerto Rican's DNA, mm. at least in the 1970s. So, you know, uncles would come around, and they'd have their Schaefer beer, and we'd <laughs> sit around the black-and-white TV, right, with the, with the bent-up rabbit ear antennas, and we'd watch the fights. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of them, and they were exciting fighters, basically, for the most part. Right. Right, yeah, especially yeah, the, the the early '80s, and you know that's you you definitely uh, you know uh, chronicle some of those in in, in sporting blood. Um, but as as far as uh, as as kind of you know turning the the, the love of of boxing uh, into into writing, when when did you start uh, um, you know thinking about being a boxing writer? Oh, that didn't come until a lot later. I mean. You know, I think it was like 2007 when I first started writing. So I was pretty old already by then. Okay. Jaded and, you know, I had always thought of myself as some kind of like, you know, writer, but I never had any discipline. And there was always so much to do, you know, another movie to go to, a museum, a concert, another girlfriend to spend time with or whatever. So I can never finish any project like, you know, a story or a novel or anything like that. So, you know, I just turned to boxing because I noticed that there were a lot of figures that I, were in, I was interested in, like fighters from the past, that no one had really dug into pretty deeply. And so I said to myself, you know what, I'll do it myself. What the hell? Right, And that's right. pretty much how uh, I started. What was the first piece you got uh, published? Uh, I think it was uh, Boxing Digest. Um, you probably know Sean Sullivan. Oh, yeah, yeah. It works for uh, Ludabella now. Yeah, right. So he took uh, the first thing I wrote, which is an article on uh, Eddie Macon, the 1950s, 60s heavyweight, um, who died tragically, unfortunately, when he was 40 years old. But that was the first thing I wrote, and it was like 3,500 words. Mm. uh, (laughs) Boxing (laughs) Digest had a 1,200-word limit. So I had to cut that down by like 2,000 words. So from there, I said, well, you know, paper may not work for me because I'm long-winded. <laughs> right. I'm definitely long-winded, you know. And, you know, so I started a website, and then from there, here we are 13 years later, and I finally have something to show for it. <laughs> well, that's great. That's great. You know, it, it's funny. You did uh, you did an interview with uh, with Sean Nam, our, our mutual friend Sean Nam, for uh, the Boxing Junkie uh, USA Today's uh, boxing page, and uh, I love what you said. You said, uh, uh, you know, you're like basically I'm a pretty limited guy. You know, I, I know about hardcore music and '80s metal, film noir, jazz between uh, 45 and 65. You know. 20th century fiction and, yeah. and, and, and poetry, you know, and, and pretty much boxing, you know, and boxing is like, you know, your first love. So it's the thing you have, uh, you have, uh, you know, most knowledge of. So, uh, yeah, so. I try not to overreach, you know, <laughs> I try. if I get interested in something, I usually try to really be interested in it. You know? <laughs> um, there aren't too many like side side things I'm interested in, you know, as a whole, right. I would say. Right. But, you know, boxing has captured my attention, you know, basically for 40, I don't know, 42, 43 years. Right. But, you know, as a little kid, I guess it doesn't count as a little kid because you can't really, you know, figure out what's going on, who's who, what's happening, uh, sanctioning body nonsense or whatever. But, you know, since the 70s, I've been following boxing in some capacity. Less so today, I, I might add. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's funny that it it, it kind of reminded me. I don't know if you knew uh, Captain Video up in. Uh, he lives up well, like Hamilton. He used to live up in Hamilton Heights, like in the the West One Thirties, um, just above West Harlem. But uh, I was at a. I was you know he he has like the or he you know I mean his widow now has like the largest um, tape collection of TV fights probably in the world. 
Um, wow. he, he was like obsessive. He, he taped like every TV boxing match from the 1970s, you know, until he passed in 2012 and his widow kept it up until like the end of 2019. And she's just like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. But, uh, wow. I remember going to his wake and basically his son came up to me. He's like, listen, he's like, my dad had two obsessions. He's like, and, and, and Bella was, you know, he was an amazing classical pianist. You know, that, that was pretty much his profession. Um, he either was playing piano or he taught piano and boxing. <laughs> you know, and he was oh, like, okay. he had yeah. two things that he mastered and he did them unbelievably well. You know, the world's largest tape collection and playing Carnegie Hall. So, <laughs> so well, you know, you're I in good company, Carlos. Uh, <laughs> oh, thanks. I, re- I remember him from the uh, New York Times actually had an article on him. Right. Right. Yeah. I wish collection. I knew about him in the yeah. I wish I knew about him in the eighties. Oh um, no. You know, you know because you know I was trading trying to trade tapes. You know I didn't realize there was region one, region two. You know. Right. <laughs> so, I got burned more than a few times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bella was definitely the good because Bella was such a sweet guy, such a great guy, and yeah, I mean he had everything, and he just loved to show it off, and and you know have you come up and. And and check it out and and uh, yeah I bought you know when I was managing fighters in the you know late nineties and and two thousands I mean he was he was my source you know for uh, for everything but kind of kind of YouTube kind of killed uh, killed his business a bit but oh, yeah uh, for me it was uh, ESPN Classic finally came out right and I don't know if you remember but they they were heavy on on classic fights right uh, when they first came out it was fights 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 and you know as a kid, I never saw, you know, half these guys. I never saw Dempsey. I only read about Dempsey. You know, I never saw Jack Johnson. I only read about Jack Johnson. And all of a sudden, ESPN had these guys on TV, and it was just, like, revelatory. Right, right. Yeah, Bill Caden's collection. Yeah, we were talking about yeah. that. You know, uh, it's funny. Johnny Boz, uh, a co-manager and, and friend of mine who passed a few years ago, but he, he came to me with... Uh, he wanted to to have a, a class action filed against Bill Caton because he's just like man, he's like they don't have you know the the rights to any of that stuff and some of those old fighters you know could use the money and all that but you know we we, we couldn't quite get it together on that but oh man you know ESPN paid like a hundred million bucks for that that collection wow. and uh, <laughs> yeah. wow. yeah. barely see it anymore yeah you know I mean is ESPN Classic even around anymore is that is that defunct now or. Yeah, I, I gone. yeah, I, I I don't see it at any cable packages. It's crazy, but uh, but yeah, they they still have that that huge uh, collection. But well, listen, man, let's let's talk about your book. I mean, uh, okay, sounds good. <laughs> Sport, sporting <laughs> blood, sporting blood. So so tell me, uh, you know, wh- how'd you come about the, the the title of it? Well, the title basically comes from a Teddy Roosevelt speech. Where I don't remember the particulars exactly, but it was a few years ago that I that I read about it. And there's also like a few movies uh, called Sporting Blood, going back to the 1940s, I think. Um, but they're mostly about horses, horse racing, etc. Mm. Um, but but I was I was influenced by a Teddy Roosevelt quote, and also the fact that Jack London had a collection of book uh, stories actually uh, titled Sporting Blood. So I sort of ripped off Jack. Jack London and Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> you know, and then I also remember Elijah Muhammad when he criticized and suspended Muhammad Ali in the mid 1960s. I remember him saying about Ali that his faith wasn't pure enough because, you know, he had sporting blood. And uh, just the idea that it was something Ali couldn't shake off. And, and he proved it. You know, throughout the years, by being unable to shake off boxing until he was well past it, but that's basically what the title comes down to. Interesting, interesting. So, this—I mean, it, it's it's twenty-one stories. You know, kind of essays on fighters. Now, um, some of these are new, but but most of these are are, are from uh, from previous publications that, uh, that 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 you put them in. Well. I would say there are five new stories, but then a number of the other ones are revised. They've been expanded or revised. So if anybody should ever like stumble upon it, upon a story on uh, some website or maybe Wayback Machine or something like that, 
you know, they'll find a different version of it. So most of them have been updated. And, you know, with the Internet being what it is, I mean, half of this, like more than half, a lot more than half of these stories don't exist anywhere at this point. Right. So, you know, revising them took some time. And I hope, you know, I hope the new versions are better than they were. Well, I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. Um, well, I hope so, because, you know, I worked hard on that stuff. <laughs> you, you remixed them. You remixed them a little bit. Exactly. There's like uh, extended versions now. That's you right. Know? Yeah. The dub version, the club version. <laughs> eh, you know. But um, that's basically it. You know, a collection of stories is a little different than, than a biography, obviously. And, I, and I'm hoping, what I'm hoping for is to catch that limited attention span um, that some people may have. And, you know, the longest story, I think, is about 8,500 words, which is on Mike Tyson, which is pretty much the centerpiece of the book, I would say. Like this crazy story about Tyson during the summer of 1988 where he was just out of his mind. And right. I think that'll be the That'll be the draw for most readers, I think. Something like that. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, listen, yeah, Tyson, uh, yeah, that was, that was, uh, I mean, it was just an unbelievable time, um, you know, for him because he was pretty much at the apex of his powers, too, you know, and and just that, just as he was getting there, you know, his life just seemed to spiral out of control. I mean, it is an an incredible story. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, all, all of all of the 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 essays are 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 great. I mean, I highly recommend. I mean, just cover to cover, this is an it's an awesome book. I mean, th- three of the ones that you know I, I kind of you know wanted to to talk about. I mean, I I talk about more, but uh, wanted to focus on. I, I love the Bird Cooper uh, shot at Holyfield uh, story. Bird Cooper, man. <laughs> yeah, talk talk a little bit about Bird Cooper. Oh man, who doesn't love Bird Cooper? I mean. <laughs> This guy was beyond the pale. Um, you know, when he fought Holyfield, he had already been in and out of, like, drug rehab. I mean, he was hooked up with Elvis uh, Parker, who was insane, you know, uh, basically a con man. He was also, uh, his management was overtaken by a professional wrestler, I think, uh, Jimmy Adams, or a professional wrestler <laughs> uh, wannabe, maybe. And uh, it was just insane that he received a call one day while he was hanging out in his trailer because he lived in a trailer for Christ's sake <laughs> and uh, to fight Evander Holyfield for the heavyweight championship of the world right I mean it doesn't get any crazier than that <laughs> but you know Burt was always one of my favorite fighters because mm. he destroyed Willie DeWitt oh on yeah CBS yeah and that was just man versus the child there <laughs> oh boy honest to God yeah had a great that would yeah. be that that, that crap. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go oh, ahead. I was just gonna say with the Dewitt fight. I mean, it's so crazy. Like Willie Dewitt, if people don't remember the name, he was an Olympian uh, for Canada and was actually considered, you know, one of the the favorites. And I think he ended up getting a silver medal in the uh, in the '84 games. Uh, lost to Henry Tillman, in a really close fight. But yeah. he was like the pride of a small town in Canada. I think it was like Regina. It was called Regina. I forget which Saskatchewan. I don't know. I forget which province it was in. Yeah. But I remember. I remember that fight because I mean, he was in front of his hometown crowd, and oh man, they were rowdy. They were so like into it, and Cooper just beat the living like shit. <laughs> like like by the. I mean, it was a competitive it was fight effortless. for <laughs> Yeah, but like he left him in just a bloody pulp and just like helpless and and i've never heard a crowd like so silent i was just like oh that is so brutal (laughs) yeah that was awesome that was truly awesome (laughs) because you know he didn't look like a fighter brooke cooper i mean he was short he was squat he had really long arms right um but yeah he really he really took it to uh willie dewitt poor willie dewitt (laughs) and then uh cooper had a fight with uh henry tillman which was a fight of the year type thing right that was that was a pretty awesome uh, cruiserweight fight. You don't find too many of those, you know. But by the time he got to Holyfield, I mean, eek. He had gone through the ringer, basically, you know, right? He had been knocked out by uh, uh, Riddick Bowe. He had a life-and-death fight with uh, Ray Mercer. Right. And he, he quit. He quit on the stool against George Foreman. So this is a guy who was not 
according to the precepts of boxing. And then one day he gets that phone call, and he almost makes it work. Right. Yeah, with 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 the Vander. Yeah, I mean, if people people don't remember, I mean, he, I mean, Bird Cooper. If he could do one thing, he could punch like a motherfucker. Yeah, I mean, just a really hard puncher. Whether he was a cruiserweight or heavyweight, I mean, he he could he could you know just really hit. And uh, yeah, he he had Holyfield in all kinds of trouble in that fight. <laughs> Yeah, he did. He did. I was like screaming. You know? <laughs> I was screaming at the television. I was like, I couldn't believe what was happening. But you know, Bert was sick. Not, not only was he a late substitute, but I think he had the flu going into that fight. Right. And you know, he his chances were were gone. You know, once Holyfield survived that that uppercut and the onslaught and overhand right or whatever, his chances were pretty much gone. But you know, what surrounded the fight was like just truly insane. Like. Elvis Parker eventually was murdered by one of his own fighters, right. uh, Tim Doc Anderson, who accused Parker of poisoning him. Right. And giving him this like lifelong disease, uh, which he could never figure it out. So he, he got Parker into a motel room, uh, determined to find out what he had been poisoned with. And what it ended up in is Doc Anderson shot him multiple times and uh that was pretty much the end of that story uh which you know it ranged for like five years it went from burt cooper and holyfield to mark gastineau right. elvis parker and tim tim doc anderson and then murder <laughs> uh, uh, you can't get any crazier than that absolutely absolutely you know it's crazy with with mark gastineau too um uh you know I didn't know this, but you know who trained Mark Gastineau? Yeah, Jimmy Glenn. Jimmy freaking Glenn. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I was talking to Jimmy about that, uh, like maybe about a year ago. I was at Jimmy's corner, and, and I was talking to Jimmy, and I, I, I you know, it just it slipped my mind that he he trained Gastineau, and and he told me that he <laughs> he actually moved out to like I think Gastineau was living in Arizona. And Jimmy moved out to Arizona to teach him how to box and, like, was living in Gastineau's house. And he said, you know, it was just so fucking crazy. Like, he's like, Gastineau was just insane. And and at the at the time, like, Gastineau was living with Bridget Nielsen. And, right, right. And, and Jimmy said he knew it was time to go when they were chasing each other like naked around the house and right in front of Jimmy. He's just like, you know what? I think I need to move out of here. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm surprised Jimmy admitted to having trained Gaston. Right? <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, Gaston's fights were fixed. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. 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 He so, was horrible. I don't know if you can really train a fighter when he, you know, he's fighting six fights. So, it's a, it's a strange thing, a uh, strange blip in his career, definitely. And the funny thing about Gaston, was his first fight, I think, was against the wrestler, uh, Derek Dukes. That's right. Yeah, it's amazing how when you get to, like, this lower strata of boxing, you know, the subterranean underbelly part, how many wrestlers, you know, pop up. Right. It really is crazy, you know, because they're both, like, unsavory sports. <laughs> right. With a subculture, you know, a sort of like sleazy subculture. You know, not that I'm insulting boxing or wrestling, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of sleaziness involved, right? And uh, yeah, it's really weird that Glenn would even admit to that. Right, 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 right. So crazy, too, with gas. that shit under wraps. I would keep that under wraps forever, man. <laughs> exactly. You know? Maybe I shouldn't have told anybody. Maybe Glenn, you know, Jimmy was just telling me. I don't know. Oh, you got to edit this out, brother. That's right. There's, 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 there's that edit I got to do for sure, for sure. It's funny too with Gastineau. I, I, I happened to be right out of law school and working in Japan when he ended up having his last fight. When uh, Foreman fought with Crawford Grimsley in Tokyo, um, I went to that fight, and uh, he fought Alonzo Highsmith on on the yeah. undercard of that, and Highsmith just absolutely destroyed him in that fight. God. So I had the privilege. I had the privilege of not only watching Gastineau get destroyed on that card, but as crazy. I mean, I don't think the official Japanese commission even like sanctioned this card. They had to get sanctioning from some other commission somehow. They they made the fight come off, but 
Tommy Morrison fought on that card, like HIV positive Tommy Morrison. So that was just you want to talk about boxing's underbelly. Ugh, that that card. Exactly. Is, I remember. I think he fought. He fought uh, Marcus Road. Yes, yes, Marcus yeah. Road, a guy who yeah. constantly was getting knocked out in one round by heavyweights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Marcus Road, basically I, the first decent punch, like he went down, and you know that that was it. He wanted no part of exchanging with uh, oh. Tommy Morrison. <laughs> Smart guy, smart guy, <laughs> that Marcus Road. I always thought so. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but that kind of story, right? Like the Highsmith and Gastineau, that kind of thing. I mean, it pops up a lot in Sporting Blood. You right. Know, it's, kind of, it's like this crazy subterranean subculture where almost anything could happen. Right. Um, especially, especially maybe, I don't know, in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, that kind of thing. But there's less and less of that chicanery now. It's mostly out in the open, like poor matchmaking or, you know, mismatches and stuff like that. But there's less of a a jokey feel to boxing today, I think, as far as camp or kitsch type things go. Right. Yeah, and that's sort of a shame. Because I think the problem with modern boxing is that it, you know, they lost this kitsch factor. So, like, no matter who's in the ring, it's of great importance, you know. (laughs) You know, even though we know it's not, right? You no, know, it's not. It won't. It won't stop announcers from screaming and yelling, and you know, people boosting. Uh, you know, so it was better off when two football players fought. They could just be football players, <laughs> you know, right? Uh, like Seth Mitchell. Remember Seth Mitchell? Oh, of course. Yeah, I mean, the guy could fight. I mean, all fighters deserve respect, right? But I mean, why market a dude who needed a football helmet? in the ring, you know, <laughs> to get by. Yeah, I loved I love when uh, Ariola was was taunting him at the press conference telling him you better put you better wear your foot, you know, you better wear the helmet in the ring cuz you're going to need it. <laughs> Ariola was right. I mean, he yeah, was. it's common sense. You know, <laughs> common sense, really. <laughs> That's that's crazy. Listen, uh, another part of your book that that I really love was uh, the, the the part on Sonny Liston, which you know Sonny's just he's such a compelling figure. You know why why do you th- you know there's been documentaries done on him? You know why why do you, why is his story and, and death especially just so so enduring? Well, I think the reason for that is there are the number of mysteries surrounding him simultaneously. Um, there's the mystery of his upbringing. Uh, the mystery of his career, because he was, you know, he was a mob-owned fighter. And you can only take so much at face value when it comes to mob-owned fighters, right? Right. And then there was the mystery of his death. And um, I was sort of hesitant to include this story in the collection, because, you know, there's been a lot of talk about his death, and maybe people have figured it out. So, you know, I'm hoping no one's figured it out (laughs) (laughs) for a few more months, you know. So... So my solution would still stand up, basically. <laughs> you make a pretty compelling argument in there, for sure, uh, you know, as, as, as the cause of death. I mean, obviously won't give it away, but no, it's, you, know, you made a really a good case. But, yeah, uh, well, I mean, it's okay to give it away, I think. Uh, <laughs> you know, Red Rodney, the jazz, uh, jazz musician, was friends with Sonny Liston, and Red Rodney had a heroin, you know, addiction that was unbelievable. It was something like $20,000 a day, mm. some insane number of I mean, that's a lot of heroin. Right. You know, and Red Rodney supplied heroin uh, to Sonny Liston. And then, you know, instead of it being this kind of mafia hit or the simplest thing applies here, I think. And that's because Rodney himself uh, told this story to his son, Mark Rodney. And uh, it seems like the likeliest thing is Sonny took a bad hit. Mm. of heroin provided provided by his jazz musician friend. So, I mean, is it possible he was, you know, murdered, and et cetera, and so forth? Yeah, because he had a lot of enemies, um, especially in that time and that place. Uh, Sean, Sean Asael, who wrote the uh, Sonny Liston book that came out a few years ago, right. you know, he made, he made a good case for uh, Sonny being involved in, like, real underbelly-type stuff where, like... Anybody could be hurt in that atmosphere. Uh, no one was safe, and probably Sonny was not safe. Um, but at the same time, he was a documented heroin user and a drug user. 
That's interesting, you know, because the narrative for so long was that he was like deathly afraid of needles and, and he couldn't have possibly OD'd, but, but you're saying that's definitely not the case. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you, you'll find people who say he never drank. Right, right. I mean, you know, there are plenty of people, I think Johnny Taco was one of them, the uh, old, the, he's not dead, but the old trainer from Vegas swore that Sonny Liston never drank. Mm. You know, what are you going to do? I mean, Sonny <laughs> Liston loved to drink. <laughs> right, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, loved to drink, to drink. But you don't have to shoot up me, uh, heroin either. I mean, it's possible he tried it for the first time and then OD'd. But there's enough, there's enough doubt where the mystery stays alive. And I think that's part of the compelling uh, reason that people are interested in Sonny Liston after all these years. I mean, he died 50 years ago. Right. Right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I guess uh, the, the other, uh, or, you know, the, obviously, like I said, all, all, of the, all of the essays are amazing, but... Another kind of enduring uh, guy who's just you know because because it's it's just so vexing his story um, is Tony Ayala you know maybe one of the, the the most vexing stories in boxing you know nineteen year old one of the best prospects in boxing on the verge of a title shot superstardom and just commits this like ghastly brutal rape of his of his neighbor I mean uh, talk about Tony's story a little bit well Tony. I guess it wasn't it wasn't surprising that that happened to him. Um, he was well on his way down that path. Unfortunately, he was he was a guy who just couldn't control his impulses, and his impulses were all bad, really. Um, he was a guy that the ring is the only place he could function, basically. And um, when he drank and when he was out of the ring, bad things happened to other people mostly. But um, yeah, he was a fascinating guy. Although I'm not, I haven't been sold completely on him being like, you know, the possible future of boxing mm. or like the triple crown champion or something like that. You know, he didn't fight anybody. Right. Um, basically, you know. So it's as if like maybe Andre Bordeaux, like, you know, his career stopped at like his 20th fight or something. Right, <laughs> right. That kind of, you know. But Ayala definitely had talent and he had that kind of ferocity, uh, which, you know, aficionados like live for that kind of thing. You know, it's the fighter who who tries to re- draw a reaction from the from the audience, a visceral reaction. And he was that. I mean, he was just nasty and fierce, and also a tragic tale, definitely. Right, right. Yeah, I remember his fights. Yeah, he he drew great crowds in Texas, very enthusiastic crowds. Mm-hmm. And I, I do remember the fight where he spit on the guy after he dropped him. And uh, oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's just like holy moly. And this was like in you know early 80s i mean you know it's happened once or twice since then but it was like really shocking when it happened in the 80s you know Uh, i can't think of anybody except fernando vargas right doing that right since then yeah that's pretty that's nasty (laughs) (laughs) it's unhygienic uh it's poor sportsmanship right and it's just it's just nasty like yeah don't spit on anybody um but he had that unbridled rage, which there, there was no act. It was not an act. I mean, Tony Ayala was drinking when he was 12 years old. He was using drugs when he was 13. Um, and he just had an incredible amount of rage that was not even boxing could focus it for him. Right. Right. Well, he, I mean, it, it came out later, right? He was, he was molested as a child, right? And that, that might have been a source of, uh, yeah. source of the rage. Just yeah, crazy. it's true. Um, that's what he claims. Um, I believe him, but that's not an excuse for his, uh, right. you know, right. raping and pillaging and whatever. His predatory behavior may or may not have happened either way, whether he was molested or not. Right. But considering the way his father treated him, you know, his father basically was training him as like this human pit bull. Right. Um, it's hard to imagine him going any other way, to be honest. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, an interesting wrinkle his his story is, you know, the the fact that he served time in Rahway. Um, mm-hmm. you know, just a few years after after James Scott had had his run in Rahway. Um, and I, I remember there being, you know, uh, uh you know, there that you know, a lot of people were kind of lobbying, you know, Rahway to let Ayala fight fight on as uh, as James Scott had. And uh basically I think yeah, the the 
the warden who was who was you know instrumental in allowing Scott to continue his pro career, Hattrack, um, who also started the Scared Straight program in, in Rahway. Um, Hattrack was long gone by then, so they you know and 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 the people who kind of got him ousted really didn't like him much. So yeah, Ayala, Ayala wasn't allowed yeah. to continue his career. What I remember about that is that they stopped all prison programs across the country except maybe Angola is what I remember. Because, hmm. um, you know, that's taxpayer expense there. Right. And that's one of the, uh, the strange things about Ayala going into, into a jail that formerly had, you know, professional boxing and then all of a sudden did not. But, right. you know, about James Scott, one thing I remember about James Scott is that he fought on PBS. If I remember, this might be a phantom memory. <laughs> I swear I saw James Scott fight on Channel 13 in like 1978 or 9 or something like that. You, you know what? He may have fought because there, there's one fight in there. I think where he fought a rematch with the guy who held him to a draw maybe down in Florida. It was a Royster. Who, okay. uh, and, and I've seen it on YouTube and the announcers were it was definitely not on NBC it was definitely not um you know CBS it was it, it very well could have been PBS it might have been on public uh public uh television that's a good call you know, I was hoping you would help me out with this because I know you wrote that article about <laughs> yeah yeah James yeah. Scott oh. I mean I I definitely have uh you know you and I have similar interests in fighters, you know, <laughs> in stories. Yeah, Scott's, Scott's narrative, yeah, it was just, just I mean, I, to me, it's just uh, unbelievable that, you know, at that, that point in time, uh, you know, they they allowed, you know, a major sport. Like you said, in the 70s, you know, you're talking, you know, there's only three or four channels on TV. You know, this is like pre-cable. Um, you know, I guess HBO was, was sneaking in there, but... Um, but yeah, I mean, everyone watched those channels, you know, and, and, and in a way, you know, it was like, you know, we kind of had shared common culture, you know, with everyone because you there's only three channels. So everyone's kind of watching the same stuff. And uh, exactly. now, yeah, now it's like a microculture, it's right. like a microculture. And, you know, almost everything has lost its share of followers. There's nothing today that has as much uh, interest as in the 80s right. or the 70s pre-cable. Right, like shared interests, like you know, like you know, common common culture for 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 everyone. You know, that just you just you yeah. don't have that anymore. It's so diffuse, um, which is which is a bit of a shame. But I guess you know, it's more democratic, maybe as well. <laughs> it's got its yeah. pros and cons. People are free to go their own way now more than ever, basically. Right, right, right. Which again, pros and cons, pros and cons. But. Uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, yep. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, you know, I wanted to get uh, also into a little bit just of your kind of writing ethos, like some some themes, uh, you know, in in, in articles and just your your thoughts on the sport. Um, I remember reading, uh, reading in in an article you wrote about Rigo, which was which was great. Um, I'd, I'd love to read the whole thing, but I'll just read a couple lines. You were just talking about, you know, you said, oh, you know, over the years, the, the traditional concept of a prize fighter generating his own uh, recompense, you know, the prize and prize fighting has largely gone the way of the dodo, um, hunted down to extinction by the destructive twin powers of Showtime and HBO. And, and you were criticizing his contempt for those who contribute to his bank account. Like the audience <laughs> was inexcusable. Um, yeah. It's 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 kind of a theme, you know. You 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 addressed in, in a couple of articles just about fighters, you know, losing touch with you know the the, the concept of, of of generating their own recompense, um, and it you know it, it kind of goes to the theme in your book too, where you're you're covering mostly fighters, you know, from an era where they where they did have that concept. Exactly, I was always fascinated by this kind of like mercenary aspect of of fighting, like. Uh, fighter A goes, and, you know, to this country or to this, uh, you know, region because boxing was largely regional in like the 40s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. You know, to make sure he gets a real paycheck, like to make money. You know, and he, and that's what he was motivated by as a profession. I mean, it makes sense, right? Go where there's the most money. Right. And today, I mean, not to pick on Rigo in particular. I mean, but. Uh, the, the man has never drawn an audience. 
Uh, he's been booed wherever he goes, basically. And I'm not talking about recently, because I guess recently, I suppose he's had some decent fights, is what I understand. Right, he's actually, but, I think, listened to the critics a little bit. <laughs> Either that or his legs <laughs> are gone, I don't know which. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but yeah, you know, that, you can say that about a lot of fighters. And, you know, they're allowed to go on these parallel paths. And I'm not begrudging a fighter, you know, millions of dollars or whatever. I mean, all fighters deserve respect. It's a hard profession, even if you're, like, you know, half-assing it. Um, but there still has to be some kind of connection between what a fighter makes and what he produces organically. Like, does he produce television ratings? Uh, do thousands and thousands of people uh, attend his fights? Uh, does he sell pay-per-views, et cetera, and so forth? And when you sort of get rid of all that, um, you have a lot of undistinguished fights. And to be honest, a lot of undistinguished fighters. You know, As long as fighters don't fight each other and create a culture... Uh, of of fighting each other, it's gonna you know boxing is gonna fade away a little a little little by little as time goes on, because you, you can only have so many champions at the same time all bragging about being the best and all making excuses about not fighting each other. Now some of that has changed, I guess, a little bit uh, with Wilder and, and Fury, for example. You know who would expect uh, Al Heyman to go to another promoter? you know, to set up a fight for, for Wilder, and one which, you know, Wilder could lose, and he did in the rematch. But, you know, for the most part, boxers seem sort of, I don't know, if they're satiated, uh, because they've, they've had good paydays, and because the current corporate culture rewards them, um, on the basis of, of content creation, it's basically, you know, Showtime finds a fighter so that they can show repeats <laughs> at like right. three in the morning on their multiplex <laughs> channels or whatever. Um, it's just really weird. But, you know, there are still fighters out there who do give a damn about these kinds of things, and those are the guys we have to t- pay attention to. Right, right. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, I remember you were writing about, I think, the uh, the World Boxing Super Series and uh, and 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 Taylor and, and, and Progray. And, you know, you were definitely, that, you know, that was a fight that you were, you know, praising both guys. Because, I mean, you know, obviously the World Boxing Super Series is, to me, I mean, I wrote an article about a, a boxing league and how, the, you know, tournaments are kind of, should be the, the, the way the sport is heading. But, uh, but, you know, the fact that these guys, you know, instead of avoiding, the, you know, trouble, it's like they get in this tournament where they know they're going to be fighting the best. And, you know, you have to laud those fighters who have that instinct, you know, who want to be the best and, and seek out the biggest challenges and the biggest fights. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that's basically what boxing is about. Otherwise, you just have a series of undistinguished, you know, fights. Right. Um, and mostly mismatches, like, to be honest. But, you know, the World Boxing Super Series, uh, I don't really care about tournaments per mm. se. Right. But if it gets people together, uh, like Taylor and Progray, then yeah, I'm all for it. And these guys, they, especially Taylor. Right? Taylor has a constituency, right? He can sell out, you know, arenas in the United Kingdom. Right. Um, he didn't have to put his career at risk, and that's eventually what it, you know, ultimately what it comes down to, to some of these fighters and to some of their handlers, managers, and promoters, is: Am I putting a valuable commodity at risk? And what is it that I will get in return for this? And Taylor just ignored that. And he's young. And he only had, you know, how many fights did he have? Like 18 or 19? Yeah, I don't even know if he had that many. Yeah. I mean, he just right, in, right. The, in the low to mid-teens. Yeah, exactly. And he's just like, fuck it. Right. This is what fighters do, and I'm going to do it. And, you know, you have, to, you have to lord people like that. You definitely do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know... Well, you know, I've been trying to get you on this podcast for months. I got to say, because there was there was a uh, a newsletter that you sent around um, for for Hannibal Boxing. Um, uh, and, uh, you did an article entitled "The The Money Trap," and uh, I I love this one uh, paragraph that you have it here, and I'll, I'll I'll read it here. You're like, once fighters were contractual commodities to managers, then they became contractual commodities to managers and promoters. Then exclusive deals with premium cable channels made fighters commodities to managers, promoters, and networks. 
there are a lot of entities that would be affected by the devaluation of a fighter, either in the ring via loss or by an unimaginable respite from constant shilling. This is borne out by the bizarre shoulder programming movement, meant to give pedestrian events a sheen of importance they do not deserve. A documentary on a fight involving Tom Schwartz, solemn face-to-face antics involving Ramon Alvarez. Better fights never seem to answer to be the answer for networks or promoters, just more smoke and mirrors and a never-ending Carney Barker routine. I thought that was a really accurate, accurate depiction. <laughs> I couldn't say it better myself. I couldn't say it better myself. <laughs> no, you know, it's... You it, know, it doesn't even... Yeah. I, I was going to say, like, um, to me, what what is really interesting is just how we got to this place, you know, and, and just the, like you said, the slow drift, right, from from maybe like the late 70s where, you know, you had the resurgence of boxing and then the 80s and the advent of cable and exclusive promotional contracts. I mean, you know, how, how did you see that, that, that tracking? Like, you know, how do we, how did we get to where we are now? Okay, I would say the number one issue here is technology and the advance of technology. Because, you know, uh, boxing as a game, a promoter, can make more money today with like a tenth of the amount of people interested in his shows, basically. Like, pay-per-view definitely uh, changed boxing. Uh, the idea that you can just cater to maybe 250 to 300,000 hardcore fans and still make a, you know, a ton of money um, is one that promoters bid at immediately. And there's also the cable idea, right? I mean, like, like we were talking, when we grew up, I mean, we're probably the same age or something like that. I mean, we had three channels, right? Right. We had three channels. And now I have, you know, on my cable box, uh, 400 channels. Right. Basically. So this set up this kind of, like, uh, need for supply. There may not be demand, but, you know... Supply is important to cable, and that's why you have all these, you know, bizarre shows on TV that like 10,000 people watch. And you know, for a little while, it looked like boxing was going to be part of that whole like axe throwing contest. Or, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Right, right. Like this idea that you know, we have to have something on television. It's just no content, what. right? Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can see Paradise Hotel and Bounty Hunters and, and Vanilla Ice reality shows and Ancient Astronaut shit. It's just crazy. Like, <laughs> although a lot of people watch Ancient Astronauts. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think that's where, you know, boxing started going down that road. And then when the cable giants came in, you know, it couldn't be that they were broadcasters. They also had to be producers. And so instead of showing the events... Uh, they had to shape them. And that's where the real problem began with, like, HBO, I think, um, deciding who were the stars, who weren't the stars, who was going to fight who, who wasn't going to fight who. You know, de facto promoters, in a sense. And I think that model has also popped up with the uh, Zone and ESPN Plus to an extent. Um, not completely, I'm not sure about that, but they just seem to put on fights for the sake of putting on fights for the most part. Right. Yeah. I think Espinoza's talked about this. You know, he, he just feels like, you know, and, and you've also mentioned it in your columns where, you know, A, you're, you're letting the promoters pretty much dictate, you know, what the bouts are. There's no curator. There's no, you know, quality control at the networks, you know. Um, but, but you know, you've got the zone and they've got, you know, what, it's, it's all dead air, uh, you know. So, you know, they're starting from scratch. So So basically, they're just looking for something to like you know, paper the time, you know, so they're airing like, you know, six, seven fights, you know, undercard fights, which is in a way for hardcore fans is great. You know, you get to see undercard fights you never would have seen, but at the same time, you know, it it just doesn't seem like there's enough curation. You know, you're not, you're not really seeing, you know, it's, it's, they just need something to fill the time. You know, it's, it's not like, you know, other sports and, and, you know, to me also it's, it's, the fact that you don't have um, a league or a you know you know a commissioner or you know just the promoters working together to say you know to to put on the best fights and to to curate this thing kind of themselves like all right 
you know, let's put like really good fights on every one of these networks. We've got all of this money coming into the sport in an unprecedented amount of money. You know, why isn't there a great fight every week? You know, and, and each month, you know, you know, each channel gets, you know, one really good fight. You know, you know, why can't, you know, there's only like 10 promoters at most that matter. You guys can't get in a room and figure this out. <laughs> you know? yeah, that's that's yeah. the frustrating part for me. It's always been the frustrating part. Yeah, well, um, you can't trust promoters to do basically anything. I mean, <laughs> giving a promoter, yeah, and the, the problem is these, these guys all have exclusive contracts. Right. You know, a promoter now has a paymaster whom he has to satisfy to an extent, whereas before he was trying to pay the rent. Right. You know. Right. And and that's changed a bit too. And so these guys won't work together as much as they should. Although you know, DAZN seems to be interested, and ESPN has definitely you know reached out to other promoters. Uh, but you know, it seems like the interest of the corporate powers above them uh, take precedence over the fights themselves. And until that changes, I mean, really, probably nothing else will change. Right, right, right. Yeah, TV is basically dictating to boxing. Boxing isn't telling t- TV, okay, here's what we're going to do. You know, how can you help us? <laughs> you know, it's just right. because right. it's it's all these individual small entities just trying. I mean, they are, you know, they're just looking for the biggest deal. The bottom line is the bottom line for them. So, you know, they're just looking for money and if, you know, to stay afloat. And, you know, these guys are offering big money, so it's like, okay, whatever you want, you know. Yeah, okay, we'll, we'll put on 50 cards. You know, do we have a roster that, 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 that really can stretch to 50 cards? Hell no, but yeah, we'll do it. <laughs> you're going to pay us, we'll do it. That was my complaint, too. It's like none of, you know, because you're, you're, you're going exclusive and not picking and choosing from, you know, everyone in the sport, like, you know, HBO and, you know, to a lesser degree, Showtime did. Um, because you're you're doing it, you're basically relying on uh, you know you, you have to work with the roster that you've bought, and to me like not there, there isn't any one of these entities that has enough roster you know to stay completely in house and make great fights for an entire year it just it just it's you know even p b c as big as they are it's like they you know a lot of the main events they're putting on just aren't aren't up to scratch you know i agree I agree, but the thing with promoters. They have. They want to make the most money, but they're also like, um, I guess what, like pilgrim hawks, right? Like a hawk will give up his, you know, his savage predatory ways, you know, if you feed him a mouse a day or whatever, right? So you can like, in a sense, domesticate a pilgrim hawk. Right. And promoters are going to work a lot less as long as they get a paycheck, no matter what. I mean. Right. So when you give. You give Bob Arum, you know, a contract for seven years at X many millions of dollars, he's already got the money in hand. Right. And, you know, so, he, you know, he's, his, he's been satiated to the extent that the work is just not going to be that hard for him. He's not going to put in as much work. Although I would say, you know, Top Rank works hard. I mean, PBS, PBC works hard. Um, Oscar doesn't work hard, I don't think. But, you know... <laughs> Most of these guys do work hard. It's just that their their priorities are a little skewed at the moment. Right. Well, I think it. You know, in in a way, too. Um, I mean, these deals are. You know, again, this pros and cons thing. But like, you know, there's a lot of boxing on TV, and that's great. You're a boxing fan. It's almost. It's too much boxing, almost. You know, and and these guys have to fulfill so many damn dates. They can't. A. They can't really properly promote them. You know, and and get people out to see them. Um, but it's just you know the their rosters are are are, are just too thin. You know, I mean, it, it, you know, a little less boxing and a little more quality. <laughs> you know, would be to, absolute. Yeah, is 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 you know kind of what I'd like to see. You know. Um, I totally agree. I totally agree. There's a Ferdy Pacheco quote that, you know, I remember from years ago where he's like, who cares if Fighter A fights Fighter B or Charlie Tombstone Smith one last week? The big fights are the ones that matter. Otherwise, it's, they're just like, you know, you can't differentiate between them. Right, basically. right, right. One guy beating up another. Yeah, that's why, I mean, the, the reason I like the World Boxing Super Series, or, you know, not particularly the World Boxing Super Series as an organization, but just the idea of, like, like every other sport has playoffs, you know, to, to determine a champion. And 
boxing has just so gotten away from that, you know, with all of these goddamn like organizations and titles, you know, you've just got, it's just, you know, and guys, once they win a title, they just play it safe. They just defend the title. They don't, they don't need to prove they're the best. They're the world champion. Right. You know I mean? And, and, and they can get on Twitter and, and talk shit to everybody else and never have to fight them. And, you know, it's like, you know, if you had a, a, a system where, you know, at least every couple of years, each weight division would, would have to have a tournament and the top guys would have to face each other and really prove who's number one, no matter, you know, if three years earlier some guy won it and he's still the champ, it's like, well, go prove it again. You know, I mean, every other sport, you don't get to hold on to the title. You got to prove it every year who's the best. So, I don't know. I, yeah, I kind of like that. You don't, that you don't get to pick your opposition either in other sports. Right, right, right. Good point. Like, if I was a pitcher, a baseball pitcher, I would love to, like, you know, you know, pitch against like you know preteens with bad eyesight or whatever. Like, <laughs> right, right, right. Boxing exactly. is way too much. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's very unique in in that aspect. You know, as you know, the 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 team sports. You know, they make up a schedule, and you have the playoffs and this and that. Yeah, boxing. You can go on. I mean, there. You know, they, you just look on box rec. There are fifty million fighters out there with undefeated records who you know have not fought like anybody. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but hopefully that'll change, right? There's always hope. Yes, yes. Hope springs eternal. Yeah. Hopefully. Uh, I mean, you know, it's it's always subject to change. I mean, who knew that you know HBO would be out of boxing? You know, if you know ten years ago, you, you definitely would have wouldn't have predicted that. But uh, but yeah, uh, yeah. But nobody misses them. I don't think. Right. Right. You know. Not at this point. Yeah. No. I mean, a lot of people were were saying, "Oh, it's the end of boxing," and it's like, no, no, it's still, you know, it's like Lazarus, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, or, or more Rasputin, I guess. <laughs> Boxing is always going to be valuable to somebody because um, if you take, you know, take a decent fight, just take any decent fight, right? And you show it on television, let's say Fox, for example, that fight will draw more viewers than an entire month's worth of Jason Whitlock <laughs> or something like that, right? Or a couple right. of weeks of Skip, Skip Bayless or whatever. <laughs> And the, the real problem with boxing is just the uh, advertising money behind it, which is sort of scarce. Um, it'll possibly get scarcer in, in these times that are a little more, uh, a little more PC, a little more moral, moral majority type things going on. But boxing will always have value, value to television stations and uh, right now streaming, obviously. Right, right. Yeah, it always seems if there's a new technology, like boxing ends up being like the guinea pig for, you know, the low-hanging fruit that they, they, they put on the new technology. So um, as long as there's going to be new technologies, you'll, 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 you'll see boxing, uh, boxing there first. So. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so I guess, you know, uh, one, one last thing I wanted to, wanted to get to, uh, um, again, uh, excellent interview you did with Sean. Um, he asked you kind of, you know, how do you reconcile your love of the sport with, you know, the, the often uh, tragic, you know, consequences and plight of boxers? Um, and, uh, you know, you gave a really interesting answer. You said, you know, the gamble is, is not as disturbing as it, as it might seem at first glance. You know, if you've, if you've spent any time in a slum, which is a nightmare of dehumanization, you can almost understand the trade-off. Like, aspirations are very hard to come by in some of these places, and the boost that boxing can give to a potential wayward soul is a real gift. To me, that sometimes mitigates some of the tragic stories in sporting blood, but the truth is boxing is all but indefensible. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, it's true. Um, the first part of that, though, I thought was maybe one of the best explanations I've ever, you know, seen for, 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 for or, or, you know, love of the sport, though. That's yeah, great. I Talk mean, about that a little bit. Yeah. It's, not a, it's not a risk uh, to a guy who's, who's growing up in a in a war zone, basically, in comparison. I mean, I mean, where I grew up was like, you know, like Dodge City, basically, 1980s mm. Dodge City. And, uh, you know, you think about these people who are so poor and they're so ground down by, by violence and squalor. Um, and really getting into the ring is like nothing compared to that. I mean... Right. You know, a lot of these guys, and we've, we've seen them, and they're the subject of sporting blood, a lot of them, 
Um, they come from deprived backgrounds, sometimes depraved backgrounds. And if they can make something of themselves, uh, you know, earn some riches for a little while at least, right? Because, you know, a few of these fighters end up, uh, you know, well, obviously. You know, why begrudge them that? I mean, it's morally squeamish, the sport. Um, the idea that a, a kind of a first world country still has people, you know, fighting to get to the top. It's like a parody of, of capitalism um, and the struggle to get through capitalism. And I think fighters ought to fight if they have nothing better to do is probably what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the streets are hard enough, so much so that the ring is like, it's like a cakewalk for some of them. Of course, that's only for talented fighters, right? right. I mean, right. what happens to opponents, I mean, that's another story altogether. And that's one I won't even talk about because it's sort of disturbing. But, you know, the guy who's like 6 and 10 with two knockouts, yeah, that. That's another story altogether. Right, right. For sure, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, and, and, uh, another thing that I, that I always thought of, I mean, you know, I didn't have, you know, I boxed a little bit as, as, a, as a kid, like, you know, 13, 14 years old. But it's just one of those things that kind of once you've done it and, you know, once you taste a little bit of that, it's, it really just gets into your blood and into your system. I mean, if you've actually done the sport, you know, um, it's, it's, it's really hard to, to just not love it. You know, I mean, it's, it's so primal and it's, it's the ultimate, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, you know, to, when people ask me about that, I'm just like, well, having done it a little bit, you know, certainly not at the level of, you know, once I realized I wasn't going to be Sugar Ray Leonard, you know, and the, and the split lip and bloody nose lost its novelty, <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I hit the books, but, uh, but I, you know, I just always had a love for the sport, and it just—it's one of those sports. Yeah, it does—it does grab you. It's so visceral; it gets in your blood. But, but like you said too, I mean, if you've got no other options, and most of the great fighters are kids who came off the streets that and didn't have much better options. I mean, you know, it's—it's it's definitely, you know, you can you can definitely understand why they made that that decision. Yeah, I'll tell you my uh, my experience at Gleason's gym. Uh, off and on for about seven or eight years uh, proved that boxing is not in my blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I, I was almost knocked out by the guy with the training pads. You know, <laughs> I didn't duck. He hit me in the face with the training pad and, you know, just like, fuck, where am I? So, yeah, I would have a glass jaw. But, you know, it makes sense that I mean, to me, this might be, you know, it might be a mistake to say this, but it makes sense for only the best fighters to fight. Um, it's, it's too dangerous a sport for second raiders and journeymen, but at the same time, it wouldn't be much of a sport without them, right? Right, right, it's true. Yeah, so it's, it's a hard thing to reconcile, um, and I definitely don't like to see the old-timers. I definitely don't. I mean, at Gleason's, there were... A bunch of old old timers playing dominoes there, and oh, it was not the kind of sight you want to see, to be honest. Yeah, the sport the sport will definitely take its toll. You know, no no small or big. You know, you, you it leaves a mark. You know, um, yeah. And it yeah, I, I I completely agree. You know, you stay too long, and uh, you know it it it'll it'll definitely uh, rob you of of some things. Um, it's interesting. I mean, I guess. Uh, I was going to read another quote here because I, I, you have so many great ones. But uh, when you were talking about Carmelo Negron, you said nothing could take away from the terrible symmetry boxing gives its practitioners a hard scrabble life followed by a hard scrabble profession followed by a hard scrabble retirement. I mean, that, that generally is like, you know, that's that's generally how it works, right? Yeah, and it's a, it's a really strange thing when you think about it because, you know, boxers from hard scrabble backgrounds, get into boxing, right, to, you know, escape <laughs> the hard scrabble background and right. to make money and to make, you know, a name for themselves. And in the end, they invariably wind up in the same place, if not worse, really, uh, that they started out in from. 
And uh, that's really uh, something that sort of spins my head, to be honest. You know, when you think about that kind of thing, it's like he became, such and such became a boxer to escape the privations of poverty or urban squalor, et cetera, and so forth. And at the end, he's in poverty or privation or, you know, urban squalor. Right. uh, But I guess it's it's the journey, though, right? It's the journey. It's sort, of, uh, sort of roundabout. It's a roundabout right. kind of journey. <laughs> you start out where you began, even though you've been trying to escape right. where you came from. You know? Right, right. That's, yeah, that's disturbing. It's disturbing, but I guess, you know, I mean, it's, in a way, you know, I mean, you know, you get one shot at life, right? And, and you know, you, you could have just stayed where you were and, and had a really boring job and a boring life, but, mm-hmm. you know, you... Instead of choosing that, you know, you you you, you chose the ring and and and, uh, and all the thrills and the pain of the ring. So, I mean, yeah. we we wouldn't be watching it, and you wouldn't be writing about it if if, if there wasn't something uh, very alluring about it. That's very true, definitely. <laughs> no doubt. So, Carlos, man, I really, 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 really appreciate you coming on, um, and I highly encourage uh, everyone to to go out and get uh, Sporting Blood. And now, where where is Sporting Blood available? Well, right now it's uh, BarnesandNoble.com, Amazon.com. Um, as you know, physical bookstores are mostly closed. Um, I guess, and I know they're closed in New York, um, but if bookstores ever open up. Again, uh, Barnes & Noble will have them in stock, and you can always get them online. And hopefully for people who are you know, suffering from this pandemic, I mean, maybe they can, you know, I don't know, escape from reality for 10 or 15 minutes on a story that I wrote. Um, as it is, it comes out March 31st. Gotcha, gotcha. No, no doubt about it. I mean, if, you know... Now, now is definitely uh, the time. You know, if you've got the time, it's it's time very well spent uh, reading Sporting Blood. It's a great, uh, it's a great, great, great read. Really appreciate your time, Carlos. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kurt. Take care. Be safe out there. All right, you too. You too. Be safe, man. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye. And that will do it for another edition of the Boxing Esquire podcast, presented by The Ring and RingTV.com, and distributed by the Leaving in the Ring Network. I'd like to thank Carlos Acevedo for taking the time out to speak with me. Please pick up his new book, Sporting Blood. It is an excellent read. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment or a rating on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Audioboom, SoundCloud, or wherever you access the Boxing Esquire podcast. Really appreciate it as it helps new listeners find the podcast. And also, do not forget to check out my companion piece to this podcast on ringtv.com that features quotes and background on my interview with Carlos. And until next time, so long, everybody. Did you get what you was looking for?